Jesus Christ. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. Last week we looked at the cause or the reason for evangelism. The cause of, of evangelism is because... The fields are ready for harvest. And I think when we look out at the world around us, we don't see it as a a field ready for harvest. We see it as a place filled with lost people who are irritating, who are hostile, who are unlovable and unworthy of the very grace that has saved us in our own unworthy state. But as Jesus looked among the mass of humanity, He had great compassion for them. And He tells us that they were like dispirited and distressed sheep without a shepherd. And we aren't sheep farmers. We don't understand what that means. But sheep without the friendly confines of a field with gates and barriers and a shepherd to lead them to the place they should go to find food and to find water and to find shelter and protection. They are skittish. They are frantic. And they don't act like they are comforted in any way, shape, or form. And that is how the mass of humanity is. Now, we might look at them, and they may not seem that way to us, but there is a lot of spiritual unrest in our world. There is a lot of stress and anxiety. There is an absolute lack of peace in our world because there is no measure of peace that the world can actually provide. We try to find it in our bank accounts. We try to find it in the government. We try to find it in the educational institutions. But my, oh my, have those things gone astray. There is no peace But we can find this peace in Christ. And Jesus saw the mass of humanity as a group of people without peace. So Jesus said the harvest was plentiful, but the workers were few. Therefore, pray that the Lord would raise up workers to go out into the harvest field to reap the harvest that is ready. And many people see that and say, well, there's a solution. We need to pray that God would send someone out into the harvest field, but certainly God is not calling me, right? And immediately after Jesus teaches them that the fields are ready for harvest and there aren't enough workers, He sends them out two by two to go and reap a harvest for the kingdom of God. Well, people are ready to receive Christ. There aren't enough Christians out there working in the fields. And so this is why Jesus has told us to go, and we'll finish this focus up next week. So getting back into our definitions for evangelism, this is found in your study guide, your sermon notes. Evangelism is very simply telling anyone, anywhere, the gospel. Our rudimentary Definition of the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And evangelism begins with telling. It is impossible to share the gospel without words. We must speak. So to repeat what's already been said, and will be said again next week, telling someone you believe in God is not sharing the gospel. Telling someone you are a Christian is not sharing the gospel. Inviting someone to church is not sharing the gospel. Telling someone God bless you, or that God loves you as you quickly leave the doorway, is not sharing the gospel. Living a clean and moral life is not sharing the gospel. Feeding the hungry and 
clothing the naked and sheltering the homeless is not sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel is telling someone about Jesus, telling anyone anywhere the good news of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how they can come to know Him. That is evangelism, and that is sharing the gospel. Now we come to the third part in our outline, and this is, number three, the confirmation. The confirmation is the confirmation of what is the gospel message. We're going to read in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. And I really didn't want to go all the way through this section of the gospel because it would get quite lengthy as we explain a lot of what is said in these verses. So we're going to kind of consolidate it a little bit into the confirmation of what is the gospel message. So follow along, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So as we look at the confirmation here, the confirmation of evangelism is all about the content of evangelism. It is the message of the person and the work of Christ. And so this passage will be our springboard into the truths about who Jesus is, about the claims that Jesus has made, and what in fact He has actually done. So as Jesus begins this confirmation of the Gospel with His select group of twelve, He begins with this question. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So the question is, who are the people saying, I actually am? You're out there. You are about there. You're rubbing shoulders with them. You hear what is being said. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the Son of Man is Jesus' self-given title that is most often used by Him as a Messianic designation. When Jesus said, Who is the Son of Man? Or, I am the Son of Man. There was absolutely no mistake about what this meant in the lives of the Jews who would hear Him make this claim about Himself. Because... The Son of Man was a title that is rooted in the Old Testament and it has a very specific and a very clear messianic undertone in it. We find this in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a Son of Man was coming and He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. Now you'll note in my translation said man is capitalized, and in my translation, every time a title 
for God is used, it is used in all, excuse me, it is used in a form of capitalization to make sure that the reader understands that this is a messianic designation or it is a title about the person of God. And so this is rooted in Daniel, this messianic designation of the Son of Man. And the Son of Man would be presented to the Ancient of Days, which very, very clearly speaks of God the Father. So the religious leaders of Jesus' day very, very clearly understood what this title meant. And this is why they refused to utter it because they knew that this was in fact a title for God and it was a messianic designation. So they refused to call Jesus as the Son of Man, the name He gave to Himself most frequently. They would call Him Rabbi, they would call Him Teacher, but they would rarely if ever use this title for Him. So I am the Son of Man Who do they, who do the people out there say that I am? Now this question is being asked not because Jesus was unaware of who people thought He was. He knew the hearts of men and He also knew what people believed about Him. This question is really for the disciples, the followers of Christ, to give serious consideration to. They and we will eventually contend with those out there in the world who look upon Jesus with some positivity, although with some uncertainty, they don't necessarily trample upon the name of Jesus, but they don't necessarily bow their hearts and their minds and their lives before Him either. People out there in the world recognize Him to be more than just an ordinary man, but they cannot accurately say who in fact Jesus is. Now this isn't any different in our world today. There are many, many people out there in the world who look upon Jesus, the person of Jesus, with some level of positivity, even though they don't truly understand the significance of who He really is. And that leads us now into the second point of our outline, number two, the popular perceptions. Now, verse 14 articulates the popular perceptions in Jesus' day. They said, and they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, to be sure, each one of the individuals that are referenced here are great men. All of them were dead, even John the Baptist. It is interesting that the people who thought favorably of Jesus saw him as some kind of reincarnated being, or perhaps even a resurrected being, that has come back to speak for God. This is indicated more clearly in Luke's Gospel, and Luke 9.19, and they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others but that one of the prophets of old has risen again. So it's interesting that in each of these favorable assessments of Jesus, some see him as some kind of a forerunner, 
or some kind of a prelude to the actual coming of the Messiah. It's very, very interesting, and I didn't bring this up to highlight here, but John the Baptist, when he was in jail, also said, ask, should we look for someone else, or is this Jesus actually the Messiah? John the Baptist, who is recorded in the earlier parts of John the Baptist, of, of the Gospel of John, would say, "Behold, here comes the Lamb of the uh, the Lamb of the world, uh, the, the Lamb of God slain before the world." He was sure that Jesus was the Messiah. But many, many months has passed, and Jesus has not reinstated the rule of God in Jerusalem and overthrown the Roman enemies and restored the kingdom of God in a way they thought the Messiah would. So although they looked upon Jesus favorably, they weren't quite certain that He was actually the Messiah. So the people of Jesus' day looked upon Him favorably, but they couldn't accurately say that He was who claimed to be the Son of Man, that title which is rich in overtones of a messianic designation. Well, since Jesus' day, much of the world has similarly wanted to speak highly of Him without necessary without necessarily recognizing His deity and His Lordship. Now, we will encounter people who will fit this very category. They look upon Jesus favorably, but they have some ideas about who Jesus is that aren't consistent with Jesus, the Son of Man, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who was sent to die on the cross in their place so they would come to know Him. And so people in our day would say He's a good man. He's a social reformer. He's a religious revolutionary. He is perhaps a prophet. He's the one that I call upon to bless me and to give good things to me. There are many, many favorable ideas about who Jesus is, but in all of these assessments, they fall short of the truth of this designation of Jesus being the Son of Man. They don't believe Him to be who He actually is. And so this is a part of what Jesus, I believe, is drilling down deep into the hearts of His disciples, of His followers, is that there are people out there who are going to think favorably about Me, but they're going to come short of recognizing Me for who and for what I actually am. That leads into number three in our outline. And that is the heart of the matter. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now the answer to this question is really the most important answer in all of life. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, I believe it's when Cornelius appeared and was used by God to awaken the embittered hearts of the of uh, the the apostles who were called to eventually preach to the Gentiles, the question is asked, 
What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? This question here, but who do you say that I am, is really very much like that. What will you do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? It is the most important question in all of life, and the way one answers that question is going to determine their eternal destiny. Who do we say Jesus is? In the Greek, it is phrased a little bit differently, but far more emphatically, and it is, but you. Who do you say that I am? It is a call to an account. It is a call of very, very serious assessment. It is not just an opinion. It is actually adversative and it marks a contrast. And it is highly emphatic. But you, who do you say that I am? Apart from what you hear, apart from what the rest of the world might think or believe or say, Who do you say that I am? Jesus turns his attention away from the general public and its casual contacts with its imperfect loyalty and understanding. And he asks how it was with the men who were his closest followers. Now, Jesus knows exactly what they think. He knows the answer to the question before he asks it. But it is necessary for them to answer it for themselves. Who do you say that I am? Now, we're going to pick this up in in just a few moments. But the disciples have been with Jesus for nearly three years now. His public teaching ministry is all but over And in just a couple of months, Jesus is actually going to die on the cross and He wants these men to articulate who they think He is. And this profession that we see here will surely dictate the rest of their lives. This brings us to number four in our outline, and that is the confession. The great confession that is uttered by Simon Peter in verse 16. You are the Christ the Son of the Living God. I wonder what facial expression Peter had when he answered that question. I would imagine that there would be a sense of incredulousness that you would even ask the question, Jesus, we know who you are. You are the Son of Of the living God. I wonder if Peter had a look of concern or maybe even betrayal that Jesus would even need to ask that question. But it did need to be asked. The apostles, the disciples were fickle followers. Peter, the one who so boldly proclaimed the truth about who Jesus was, in just a couple of months is going to deny he knows him. The question is asked to them all, and Peter, the spokesman, is the one who answers them for them all. And his assessment leaves no doubt. Christ in the Greek is the equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah, God's predicted and long-awaited deliverer of Israel, the supreme anointed one, the coming high priest, the king, the prophet, the savior. The son of the living God is equivalent to 
to the same designation Jesus used for himself. As the Son of Man, it indicates they believe that he is the creator of the universe and all that is in it. He is the one true God. This is the truth of who Jesus is. It is the confirmation of the person of the gospel and it carries with it the message of evangelism for all the world to hear. The truth of this confession is going to be confrontational in the world because the world is not going to understand it. They are not going to like it. They are not going to agree with it, but it is in fact the truth. You know, there are segments within our population today that are trying to isolate evangelical Christians from having even an opportunity to speak in a certain public format or forum. They are being asked to be removed from being able to hold a seat within a particular public entity. There is a concerted effort in our world today to isolate Christians from the world, to treat them as if they are pariahs and outcasts because we don't like the message, we don't like the beliefs, we don't want to hear it, and we believe that you are going to unnecessarily bias others with your bigotry, hate-filled ideology, and we don't want any part of it. It's not going to get any easier to be a Christian in this world. It's not going to become any more popular in the world to be a Christian. But whether or not we recognize the confrontation is out there, it is out there, but Jesus is the truth. The person of Jesus and the work of Jesus is in fact the entity that entails the evangelical message of the gospel and that is the message that you and I have been called to carry with us into the world. We're going to look at this again in greater detail next week. Lastly, in our outline today, number five, the blessing. The blessing that is found in the confession that Peter has uttered, we see in verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus uses Peter's full human name, Simon Barjona, to pronounce his blessing upon this divinely revealed truth to not only Peter, but to the other disciples and to all who would ever call upon the name of Jesus for salvation. Peter and the others did not come to this conclusion because of flesh and blood, which is another way of saying they did not come to this realization through the persuasion of men. They came to this realization through the Father who has enabled them to know and to understand. The Father is the one who opened their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. It is impossible, think of this, it is impossible to know the number of people who personally encountered Jesus during His earthly ministry. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. We said in week one that Jesus was in the region of Galilee, which estimates of a population of nearly three million people. That is beyond the focal 
point or the scope of Jesus' ministry, it's impossible to know the number of people who were exposed to the personal ministry of Jesus Christ, but everyone who was exposed to Jesus were exposed to His teachings. Jesus would say, in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He would say in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. They had heard His teachings. They had seen His miracles. The healing of the blind, the healing of the lepers, the healing of the lame, the casting out of demons, even the raising of the dead. They had seen what Jesus had done. They heard the claims that Jesus made about Himself. He said, I am the bread of life in John 6.35. He said, I am the light of the world in John 8.12. He said, I am the door in John 10.7. He said, I am the good shepherd in John 10.11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life in John 11.25. And He said, I am the way and the truth and the life in John 14.6. They heard the promises that Jesus made about people who had faith in Him. Matthew 11.28 Come to Me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And John 6.37 All that the Father gives Me will come to Me and the one who comes to Me I will certainly not cast out. And Jesus said in John 3.14-17 As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That, my friends, is the gospel message. That, my friends, is evangelism. Now, we believe that each of these statements is true. We have been blessed by God to be able to know that this is the truth. And when Jesus' ministry was over, after He was buried, after He was resurrected, after He appeared to hundreds of people, and after His ascension, there were only 120 people in the upper room who were praying and waiting for God to work. An incredibly small number of people compared to the thousands upon thousands of people who were exposed to the personal ministry of Jesus. But those whom God calls will respond... And we are ambassadors for Christ. We have been called by God to speak for God. And the world is filled with people who have some kind of a favorable idea about who Jesus is, but they need to hear the full truth. There are people out there who have the wrong idea about who Jesus is and they need to hear the truth. There are even those who are hostile towards God and towards Jesus Christ, but they need to hear the full truth. We don't know who will respond. 
We may just simply sow the seed. We may water the seed. We may, in fact, be blessed to be a part of the harvest of that seed. But we are called to go and to share. Now, returning to the two questions that Jesus asks in this very private encounter with the the disciples, He says in verse 13, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then in verse 15, He says, But you, who do you say that I am? So what does the world say about Jesus? And what do you and I say about Jesus? So what we say about Jesus goes far beyond what we actually believe in our heads and have been able to incorporate by faith into the person and to the work of Jesus Christ. It really drills down into this. What do we say about the work and the person of Jesus Christ? I believe the real question is this. Do we say anything at all? Do we just sit quietly by and watch as they drive the car of their life towards the cliff that will lead them into an eternal destination separated from God? Do we allow them to continue to live their lives apart from the truth of God, the peace of God, the hope of God? Do we say anything at all? Do we just quietly pray that God would raise up workers to go out into the harvest field? Or have we asked the question, God... To whom will you put in my path today that I am to say the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Would you pray with me, please?